Hello everyone, it's Danielle here and as it's International Women in Engineering Day, I wanted to re-release a rather special episode that I did last year with Dr. Anne-Marie Imafadum. Anne-Marie, for those that don't know, is the CEO and co-founder of STEMETS, an organisation working to inspire and empower more girls and non-binary people into STEM. And in this episode, we discuss her career journey from child prodigy to tech business leader, founder, STEM advocate, TV presenter and author, to name just a few of her many accomplishments. It's a great episode, so please enjoy it. Here is my conversation with Dr. Anne-Marie Imafadon. Anne-Marie, thank you so much. With all my guests, I always like to start at the beginning. So I wanted to ask you, what were you like growing up? And what were some experiences that might have shaped you? If you ask most of my teachers, I was a bit of a nightmare. I was always bouncing off the walls. I really enjoy learning, maybe more more than lots of other kids that were in the class with me. And so I would be really excited to be there, excited to know more and excited to hear new things rather than repeat. And a lot of school is repeating. So that frustrated me. Really, really fortunate actually that they knew that I still liked the learning and didn't punish me accordingly with the amount of energy and bouncing off the walls and class clowning that I did. I was also a really happy child. I'm eldest of five. And so, yeah, I had a lot of fun. I tried a lot of things, was very curious. That was me as a child, that's early memories, really. <laughs> that's exactly how it should be. Something that's slightly different about your childhood is obviously the earlier achievements, which you've continued throughout your life. Of You said this kind of curiosity and constant learning. It's also high achievement. So you got your, I think it was GCSEs in maths and ICT, age 10. You're the youngest yep. girl to get A-level in computing at 11. Yep. You won a scholarship to study maths at John Hopkins at the age of 13. Mm-hmm. And then you graduated with a master's in mathematics and computer science from Oxford, age 20. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you with great confidence that I don't know anyone else that's achieved that <laughs> at all. You should. Well, I can I tell know. you great confidence. You should know lots well, of things. You yeah, know what? Yeah, I've yeah. heard you say on other, in, you know, on other podcasts, you've said that in America, advanced learning and going off to do different exams and go to college younger is more common and I think you're right well definitely when I was younger you had this set path and it was 16 was when you did your GCSEs 18 was when you did your A-levels then you went to get your degree and it was never uh, that I knew of an option that you could have done it earlier Mm. but I think that's because majority couldn't have so what was it about you how did you accelerate your learning and what was it like being so young at university potentially I think you did you go to John Hopkins I did like a term, but the main one was Oxford and that Mm. was 17. So the acceleration of learning, I think is an interesting one where, like you said, like there's a system and everybody is meant to follow along in the system, no matter what they may have that kind of deviates, I guess, from that that mean or from that normal from that 50th percentile and so yes you are supposed to do these GCSEs at 16 yes you are supposed to do the A levels at 18 but actually where in the US system people can do credits and stuff for college as they call it I guess before they go up here it's a intricate web that's almost kind of meant to catch people that fell out of the system and normally it's for folks who fell out and weren't accelerated rather than folks who were accelerated. So as I mentioned earlier, my teachers saw that I was bouncing off, knew that it was because I was wanting to learn, wanting to take things up. And one of them actually mentioned it to my parents at a a parents evening, probably year three or year four, a guy called Mr. Davies. And it was like, look, we we get it. (laughs) 
Mm. <laughs> We've said it already, like, this isn't going to be workable. We have to give her something more so that she can. And I've, I've heard this thing that people can do exams outside. And it was like, okay, cool. Like there's an opportunity here. I wish more people were given the opportunity. I th folks do have it. Mm. I wish many more were given the opportunity, even within the system, without it being seen as, you know, you're going to create a car wreck of, a, of an adult. I think it's an interesting one where, you know, we have this with Stemets and the work that I do at the moment that we have young people every half term working on adult certifications for cyber python and agile and these are groups of teenagers cohorts of teenagers no more than 20 at a time sit it like as a group and go through these qualifications and it's the most normal thing for them because they're all just doing it together and if they fail it's like well you know that was the half term i got a load of food and met a load of interesting people mm -hmm. so that's okay and if they pass it's like cool i've got this thing to my cv and, and it's so interesting for me that we haven't done the big fanfare of your prodigy and you've done this earlier, blah, blah, blah. but they will turn up for work and it'll be like, oh, you already have the PCEP. Oh, mm. when did you do that? It'd be like teenager. You'd be like, huh? Mm. It's like, we've got like Larry and Kate over there. who are still trying to do the PCEP. <laughs> you, you had it in a teenager. And I think it is something that I wish more people had the opportunity to just try things out. I was doing these GCSEs at 10. If I'd have failed, it would have been like, yeah, of course you failed. It's for 16 year olds. What were you doing there anyway? Right? It wouldn't have been like a mark or a stain on my record that I did a GCSE at 10 and failed it because it would have been like, yeah, of course, like that's, that's what yeah. the system has been built for. And I think it's one of those things that, you know, learning from failure, allowing people to just take up opportunities without saying, hmm, they look like a genius. Therefore, we will accelerate the, you know, and I'll tell you one thing, Danielle. I had that at my secondary school. So I went to a different sixth form in the end before going up to Oxford. And my secondary school that I did kind of seven to 11, even though they supported in some ways where I didn't have to do the full set of GCSEs because I already had them. And that was a bit of a fight anyway. When it came to saying, we're going to support people's applications for universities, they were like very clear from the outset, I wasn't one of their chosen ones. Wow. And so they weren't going to support my application to Oxford if I was going to, you know, apply, you know, while I was there with them. And, and I think it's an interesting one where we end up pre-selecting and we think we know, and in the education system in particular, I know we think we're protecting people, but we're not like, let them give it a go. It shouldn't be that the whole weight of 13 GCSEs is on you do or die at 16 mm -hmm. for the first time ever, you know, and I'm quite frustrated with that as a system. I know, you know, it's a system and things are complicated to do at scale, but it is one of the things that I still, I still would hope to see in my lifetime that we liberate that a little bit and allow folks to try things early. And if you fail, you fail. Like, there's things to be learned from failure, but also, you know, what if you pass, you know, yeah. <laughs> what, what about the lightning of the load on that? So yeah, that, that was me and my kind of accelerated childhood journey and, and thoughts on that at least. Well, I was going to ask you, because I'm always interested in reimagining education and exactly what you said just there is how I feel that, you know, if we put children who are younger forward for things that they possibly aren't 100% ready for and they fail, there's no shame, there's no embarrassment. It's like, okay, well, you you can try again. So say, say you know, like you did it at 10 or whatever. If you then tried at 11 or 12, if you fail, there's not even, a, like you said, a slight kind of, you know, there's no issue with it. And yet you could try again at 12, you could try again at 13. Why we put all this pressure on children at certain ages when not all children mature or even learn at the same speed is bizarre. But STEMETS is obviously in one way changing things, especially when it comes around to education and education for girls. Can you tell me a bit about STEMETS and also what you have seen, how it's evolved in the last 10 years? Sure. So yeah, we're 10 in February, 2023, tens of thousands of young women are 
Stra strapline tagline is that we work with young women and non-binary young people from five up until 25 to engage, inform and connect them to the STEAM industry, which is science, technology, engineering, with the addition of arts and design and maths, um, and connect them to role models, a diversity of role models in diversity of roles. So what we're aiming to do, what we are doing, the impact we are having is that during those formative years, for young people who don't fit the stereotype and don't fit that majority percentage, I guess we could say of folks that are in the STEM industry at the moment, we're showing them what is possible, showing them the breadth of what is possible and allowing them to experience where they could fit into that innovation and that creativity. Um, and so that's what we do at STEMETS and, and, for, and it ranges from weekend hackathons to like I mentioned, the half-term certification academies to um, summer incubator programs for teens to mentoring programs to school trips and school visits like there's a whole suite of support that we have almost as like a one-stop shop for young people and it all centers on that connection and that community and this notion that yes you can connect with role models but also connect with peers and go through it with people with others at the same time you can learn along with them you can commiserate with them you can celebrate with them and we can give you the right kind of formative experiences that mean that you are more likely to have that success in STEM industry. You are more likely to enter the STEM and STEAM industry and you can create and innovate and build the legacy that we think, I believe, I hope to see from the technology industry that's so far from the legacy that we're leaving at the moment. 100%. In terms of what's happened in the last 10 years, so obviously when you started it, you could see, and from your own experience, there was a gap in the market for something like this. How has it evolved? Because I know, I, well, I think when I say I know, that's very naive of me. Personally, I think there has been an increase in the number, especially of visible role models, like even in films, even in the media today, you know, we have a lot more role models who are doing science or techie type jobs. Whereas when I was a kid, it was always the same. If anyone was technical or scientific in a film or program, it was a man, you know, possibly in a lab coat or in a hoodie. It was never mm. a woman, never, With a ever. Cat. Yeah, exactly. Cat and coffee. And it's always the cat and it's coffee just, combination. Yeah, it's just completely changed. And, you know, there's so many films now where they have fantastic role models of women doing technical jobs. How has it evolved for you in terms of what you've seen at STEMETS? So what we've seen, good, good question good and good observation, I think. I'd agree with you. Like, Gina Davies Institute years ago did it and it was one in seven stem characters were female and i know that number is definitely higher now i think we're telling more of those stories slightly <laughs> even mm. if it's just fictionally i think the the biggest change really i've seen across the industry is that 10 years ago when i said i was starting stemets and spoke to loads of folks because i was already in the industry there were some who were like yeah great idea i'd love to help out and there were quite a few who were like mm, but do girls really want to do the tech um others who were like mm, but, you know, should we single them out? Do they want to be singled out and do things on their own? Um, yeah, we'll never work. Let's see how it goes. And so there was quite a lot of, I had to, pr I had to prove that A, there was a problem to certain people. Mm. And then I had to also prove that, yeah, like the idea of giving young women that safe space during formative years to explore it, even if that wasn't what industry was going to look like, was still of value. In 10 years, the biggest difference I would say bigger, maybe even than the increase we've seen in folks in Hollywood and across, you know, fictional depictions, um, is that there's, there's lip service. So I'd say we've upgraded to lip service now mm. where people are talking about it. 
and you know as we've discussed like there's lots of podcasts i've been on that you'll have heard i know you talk about this all the time like we're talking about it and no one's challenging us openly at least mm. and saying no the women don't want to do it <laughs> like that that's disappeared uh, which is progress like we've got to count take the progress that we can but whether that whether that has translated into an improvement in experiences of women in industry whether that has translated into more leadership, you know, you'll know, your listeners will know the VC money that's going to women has actually had a decline in the last year. And so I think, you know, there's still so much more progress that needs to be made. And some of it will take time. Like I'm very conscious that if we work with five-year-olds, we've been going for 10 years, some of them are 15 and they'll have just about chosen GCSE subjects at this point, let alone becoming someone in industry. But I think there's definitely a lot more, you know, it's almost like D minus, like there's a definitely a lot more that needs to go on. Mm -hmm. Definitely a lot more hard work and accountability, I think is what we need to move to now. But, you know, there are more folks there, you know, when I started Stemets, was one of very few. There are, I think, people that have come and gone in the last 10 years, but there are definitely, like I said, more folks that are at least looking like they're trying to do something on this. Mm. And so the pressure is off us a little bit, actually, to have to deliver, you know, across as many young people as we would have had maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, I think that's the other thing. You were at the forefront at the beginning and obviously the pressure was on. I was going to ask you, you've obviously mentioned there about how quite a lot of people were maybe questioning, like, was it necessary? And, and obviously it was. But what were the other obstacles that you faced? So you start this company. And also, what was the conversation that led to the company beginning? Because you were in the corporate world and then you decided to set up this. How did it begin? So the origin story is I had obviously had this, or, or as we've heard, I've had that, that this child prodigy thing right I was I was a girl the whole time as well and and so was often the only right and was often actually the youngest blackest femaleist uh, and so for me <laughs> it's easier you know hindsight is twenty twenty. sometimes it's easier to pick in retrospect like it was that I was young right or it was that I was black or it was that I was female right that that was the reason I was the odd one out I ended up in industry as I said was really enjoying it and got sent to a conference in the states to go and talk about the collaboration software that we were working on at the company that I was in and turn up at the Grace Hopper celebration of women in computing and that year so it was end of 2012 there were three and a half thousand technical women at the conference and I'd never been in such a scenario such a setting of female technicality <laughs> I'm gonna call it <laughs> I'd like almost overwhelmed it. Oh my goodness. Like I've, I've never really fully noticed, even though I was very much the only in so many spaces, never noticed I was in the minority to this extent and that there were this many other folks, you know, that it's a very life affirming experience actually to be amongst, you could say many of yourself for the first time. And so that was the road to Damascus and there were different keynotes and, and such. And I heard a lot about the problem. I, I learned that I was in a shrinking minority. I learned that I was a black woman in tech as well. And all of these things, it was like, wow, like if, I had the journey I had, and I never had anyone reach out and was like, hey, Emery, you look like you're a girl that knows this math stuff. That's special. We should, you know, help you out. Mm. <laughs> we should provide a community around you. Like no one ever reached out and said that for me. And even more so, if I had that in my formative years and got to see so much female technicality, I wonder how that would have changed my journey. I wonder how that would have set me up. I wonder what that would do for others. Um, and so created Stemets as a response to this to knowing that actually thing you can get a lot done in someone's formative years tech and maths and the engineering the science and all of it is so important and is not going away and the, the minority shouldn't be shrinking you know and so this was my initial response to say hey like if i have kids i don't want their mom to be the only woman left in tech if i have girls i don't want them to feel like they're the only ones if they do enter on this path 
macro wise, there's a lot that, of resilience that's built in having women in the industry. And it doesn't make sense that there's only certain people that are building their technology that are used by everybody. How do they know? You know, and, and sometimes you can go periods if we really want to go there, because we all know period tech, femtech, the car crashes that we've seen over the years in health tech of people thinking they know what a period is and not really knowing what it is and only allowing you to track 10 days of a period and all the rest of it. And it's like, well, no, okay, that's one example. But if we can't hear people on periods, what else are we not hearing? The other value that women have and bring to these tables, bring to these discussions. And the fact that we're not building technology for the sake of technology, we're building it to solve problems in society. And who is in society? Lots of different people that aren't necessarily reflected in who we have in tech. And so that's the origin story for Stemets. And I didn't, I wasn't arrogant about this being the solution. I was like, I'm gonna give it a go. It was actually called the Stemets Project for the first year. We were at number 10 with the then education and university ministers, Michael Gove and David Willits, by the end of the first year. And then I was like, you know, I've got a job that I'm doing. This is all on the side. Other people chose yoga as their New Year's resolution for 2013. I chose the Stemets Project. I cannot do this. Said I was going to close it. And then all of a sudden there was funding. There was all kinds of support that was offered because folks were like, no, you've hit on something here. It's relaxed environments. We give the kids free food. We had unlimited pancakes at our launch at uh, Google campus. And it's like, this is something different. This is something that people are wanting. This is solving a problem. How can we support to ensure that it can grow and it can help nurture the next generation? And so that was how it all kickstarted. End of 2012, beginning of 2013. It's fantastic because like you said, you went over to America and I know the Grace Hopper celebration. Well, Telly Whitney, who was running that, did my mm. forward of my book of female innovators at work. Because oh, like awesome. you, yeah, I just felt like there was a, a misrepresentation. Like we kept being told by the press that there are no women in tech and all this. Because, and, and that's what they told us by not including us. Mm. By every story on TechCrunch at the time, which was the biggest tech press that we were all following. There's mm. never stories about women, never stories about female founders or women getting fundraising. So as far as the world could see, it was extremely male dominated. And I know it's male dominated, but it was like there were no women in tech. Mm. So representation's critical. I want to ask you just briefly before we move on to your book about STEMETs. There's obviously a lack of coverage, I would say, still for women in tech. But is there issues? Do you see issues with schools, so the education system and with parents? Because I have encountered over the last 10 years of having my son, I've encountered times where other parents are less encouraging of their daughters and, and how we change that narrative. So, uh, yeah. So, yes, I have seen those problems. I think the interesting thing is that society has problems. There are many problems across society. There are many problems actually with the education system, some of which we've already spoken about that aren't even STEM specific. And so I think it's the duty of industry because industry stands to gain the most in the short term, I guess we could say the medium term as well, in having the right kind of people coming in. And it's it's one of those ones, I say all the time, right? We can say, yeah, maths teachers, boo, right? And parents that don't like maths, boo. And they're the reason, and it's like, okay, cool, fine. But I don't know about you, Danielle, I've never met anyone who said they've stopped listening to music because they dislike their music teacher. Mm. And, you know, got to think like, if you look at other places, not everyone needs, we have a great opportunity in that there's elements of what we do there in the school curriculum. You, we have dancers, you know, we have, a, we have such, we have all these industries, especially in the UK that don't, aren't analogous to an education system. And what's happened, the industry has done what it's needed to do. Football academies, they've done what they've needed to do. And so it's not just old parents and old teachers and all, you know, whatever. It's like, no industry, what have you done? What are you doing? 
to provide those routes, the alternate routes for people to come in. What are you doing to tell those stories? What are you doing to solve those problems? What are you doing to excite folks and to attract them? And what are you doing to retain them? Because if people knew that they could be a success in that industry, you wouldn't have to do all the work that we're having to do to attract, right? And to promote and the rest of it, it'd be like, yeah, my auntie is X, Y, and Z because we have let them in, right? Because we have treated them well, because they have been successful and because we have told their stories, you wouldn't have to. I know you've definitely had Stephanie Shirley on this already, but mm. you know, we talk about 1960s. I was furious the day I learned about Stephanie Shirley, mm. furious, because I'd been told the 60s was twiggy and miniskirts, end. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, fine, miniskirts, okay. Twiggy, nothing against her personally. But we had Stephanie Shirley doing that in this country at that point for all the reasons that we've heard, we've read Let It Go, we've heard her story. And none of you, no one could have said Stephanie Shirley also in the 1960s. No, it's Twiggy and miniskirts, we've said, rather than these women literally coding and running the country from their kitchen tables because of their new system. They were working from home in the 60s at a time when you couldn't get a mortgage without your husband and you couldn't open a bank account without your husband. Like, tell that story. And if folks knew that that was the agency they could have, that was the upside that they could have, you know, she fell off the Sunday Times rich list because of her giving. Like if folks knew that and we told that story properly, rather than hiding it, obscuring it and wanting to double down like TechCrunch did on all kinds of nonsense that followed their own archetype and their own narrative that they wanted, we wouldn't have this problem. We wouldn't need to look for blame elsewhere. And so I think that's the, the crux of it. Yes, we can change the education system, but you know, there's so many things that are relying on the education system that really, you know, I mean, I know this is important, but is that where we start? Like there's a whole load of adults ready and waiting, right? That should be in our wings. Why don't we work on them before we go down to just, you know, the five-year-olds and the, and the 15-year-olds? Absolutely. And talking about Dame Steve Shirley, one of the things that she always talks about, which I think is also really critical, is that when she was trying to get contracts, and this was back in the day before, you know, you were doing emails and everything else, she was writing letters and signing her name, Steve, because mm. she found that when she signed it, Stephanie, she was less likely to get a response. Exactly. So it is absolute madness. But yes, 100%, those are great points. Um, now, onto your book, She's in Control. One of the things that I think is so great about it is you highlight, like we are just saying then, role models that a lot of us haven't heard of. Now, I have having been a woman in tech and done a lot of research into female innovators. But I wondered if you could talk about at least two of the women that you mentioned in the book and why it's important we know their stories. It's important to know their stories because so many folks, especially those that I've written the book for, feel like this isn't their space. They feel like it isn't their domain. They feel like they're not smart enough. They feel like they're artsy. They feel like they would be the only ones or the first ones coming into it. And I think if you know that you are joining a historical chorus <laughs> of technical women, it takes the pressure off, you know? Like if you know that when you watch Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and you see them patching the phone through, or you watch The Crown and you see them patching the phone through and you see those women doing that there, and you realize that those women were doing that day shift because they were doing so well that the men on the night shift had no work to do and actually were less efficient. Like the way you would approach all of this is so different than if you come in feeling like you're gonna be the only one like it's not something you're supposed to do, like you're going against the grain. So it's so important to know the stories because it's an archetype. It broadens our view of success and who can do the technology. And that is important for many people. We'll have heard the the kind of the adage, the idiom, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. Like that, that is what that is about. So it is very important for us to tell the stories so we can inform our norms and we can ensure that we take up space where we are due to take up space where we are 
entitled to take up space. So that's why. In terms of the stories, I mean, two. One is Gladys West. I call her Auntie Gladys. She's a fantastic woman who grew up on a farm in West Virginia and was like, I can't, this farm life is not for me. I need to get out of the farm. And maths was her ticket out of the farm. She's like, if I can study for long enough, I could get out there and I can figure out what I could do instead of just being here on this farm, doing all kinds at 5am in the morning. And she did that. She did the math. She learned the math. She ended up working with satellites and she did the maths and figured out that, you know, if you draw enough triangles with geostatic satellites that we have, you can figure out where anyone is on earth to great accuracy. And so when you follow the blue dot on Google maps and other, you know, mapping software available, it's the global positioning system that you are using. And it's, I call it the Gladys positioning system because it's because of her that we're able to do that and use that day to day and get around. Right. So that's one. The second one is Hedy Lamar. And, and, I, and I like telling Hedy's story because many people will recognize Betty Boop. Unofficially, I guess we, could, we should say Betty Boop was based on Hedy Lamar. She was the most beautiful woman in the world at that point. She was top of Hollywood. She was, you know, number one actress that everybody wanted on everything. She was the most beautiful woman. There's a great documentary on her life called Bombshell that has recordings from her and tells her story. And it's not for kids, I will say, not, not safe for kids, definitely not. Because she was Hollywood actress. She was at the center of it. She was a very beautiful woman. And there was a lot of interesting and cool things that she did. But she was a really keen physicist. I think her father, she, you know, that had been something they, they'd worked on when they were little. She'd really enjoyed. She'd done the acting and had kept up to date on it. She ended up co-inventing frequency hopping spread spectrum technology, which if you're a physicist, you may be familiar with, especially if you've done anything with like comms. But for those of us who haven't, um, th that's the underpinning for Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and wireless communications and safe wireless communications, actually, and secure wireless communications. And again, we, that we've completely disassociated Wi-Fi and Bluetooth with women. Yet we should thank Hedy every time we connect to Wi-Fi. And Wi-Fi is so important, you know? It's been, again, unofficially added to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And can you imagine, like, every time you log onto Wi-Fi thinking of Hedy and what that would do for just a generation, right, to have that association that, yeah, I could uphold my acting career or dancing career and stay up to date with my physics to the point that I create something that's instrumental in life as we know it in a hundred years you know and and it's things like that it's like knowing that as a story then it's less weird for you to think that of yourself because it's already happened with someone that is real and isn't that far away from our version of reality that we're in at the moment and that's super powerful it truly is and i actually i re-watched it last night because i did watch it a while ago and then I was just struck, like you said, it isn't for children because there's there's actually quite a lot of pretty, well, there's obviously some interesting bits, but it's mainly yeah. like there's, there's such sadness to it. A lot and of sadness. I felt, so much sadness. Oh, I yeah. felt like towards the end, I realized that the whole documentary was in fact done because a journalist had reached out to her, discovered her patent and reached out to her and she wanted her story told, but she didn't want the story of her acting career told mm. everyone knew that she was beautiful it wasn't about that it was all about this blinking patent which quite frankly she was almost robbed of because patents obviously expire and um she oh, i'll link it i'll link to it in the show notes but it's so fantastic but i felt really sad that towards the end it was very much like you know she'd been forgotten and it she was, was so frustrated yeah. she'd been forgotten and she'd been silenced mm and ignored and it was almost the, the, the summary I always say the summary of it is like it was like shut up and just just read your lines no one wants to hear about mm. the physics thing and that drove her that drove her they drove her to the edge mm. you know she it ended up 
you know, maybe we shouldn't spoil the, the film. Maybe people mm. should go and watch it. But it, it really did impact. It really did hurt her. And it's one of those ones where, again, knowing that as a story means that then we all know it's important to make sure we are listening to people that have the innovations, even if they don't look like what we think an innovator looks like. And even more annoying because we are still using the Wi-Fi. Like, how dare we mm. <laughs> use, use that technology, yeah. use Wi-Fi, live on Bluetooth. How dare we do that day, day in, day out when that was how she was treated for a patent that lapsed. Yeah, but then eventually was picked up by was it the navy or the army i think it was yeah, the navy it was but they didn't pay her because no. the patent had expired if yeah. it hadn't expired they'd have had to pay her in fact i think there was a 6 year period where she could have claimed yeah. uh, money for it but then she couldn't because she didn't know that she could yeah. so it was just terrible but i think there's so many great lessons in watching things like that and like you said knowing these stories and gladys west is another one she's still alive she's absolutely she brilliant she um but just it does make you think how many more how many more women are there that we, because until like Hidden Figures came out, we were like, you know, didn't know, well, I personally didn't know the stories. And I was just thinking, how many other Hidden Figures are there? And they probably weren't even written about at the time. So it's not even that easy to find. I was furious watching Hidden Figures for the yeah. very first time because, and it was, it was rollercoaster because I was also almost cried at one point, but I, I was furious because, you, you know, they do, the, as with most films that are based on a true story, they do the kind of black and white scenes and slides at the end and it's and it's like you know you took so long to tell this story mm. this woman has almost died and Catherine Johnson has now died mm. so she's almost died and it's like you want me to celebrate that you've named a building after her or named a street after her mm. decades after the fact when the only reason you've done that is because one person decided to tell this story and push it and this is the thing that in your organizations who value the people now yeah. why do they need to be near death mm. before you do these things give them credit and allow them to inspire the next generation because her story is, is inspiring. But if we if we had told it sooner, what more impact could we have had? A bit like compound interest, right? Yeah. What more <laughs> impact could we have had with it? Yeah. If we'd have just told it, like, why does mm. that need to be a school? Why does that need to be erased? How many times have we had the retelling of all kinds of stories of other people where it's like, enough with Archimedes and the mm. bathtub. We get <laughs> it. I know. <laughs> it's true. It's every science book, isn't it? But I think that's My goodness. that is changing though. And I'm so grateful for that because growing up, there was no interesting female role models in the books that I read. And I know that's changing. And there's brilliant people like Vashti Harrison who's doing like mm. fantastic books. And they're not just, you know, text, it's beautiful drawings and it brings it to life. And I think that representation for people that have never really seen it is so critical. And I think it should be in every school. But anyway, I digress. I wanted to talk to you now about in the book, you talk about standing in your power, which I thought was a very powerful line in itself. And I wondered, what does that actually mean to you? So for me, standing in my power, I mean, there's a lot of agency that folks have that they don't realize. Um, everyone has a sphere of influence. Everyone has things that they can control and things within their power. And I think it's important to recognize that and not be shy about it, not be bashful about it. Not, oh, who, me? It's like, no, 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 no. Like there's things that you can do. There's things that you can affect change. There are people who listen to you, whether they like to admit it or not. And such so there's power that everyone has. There's this fear of influence everyone has. And when we think about culture, when we think about the technology industry, when we think about our norms and the way things happen, you know, it takes one person to you know, I have a whole chapter about change makers, but it takes one person to be like, this is a change I'd like to see around me. I'm going to, live it. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to open it up. I'm going to re rewrite the policy. I'm going to, you know, change the way I open my meetings. I'm going to edit our recruitment process. I'm going to look to promote in a particular way. And I think it's, it's something that 
everybody, you know, also have this, this right alongside it that, you know, culture is the average of everyone's actions. And I think it is, everyone has that power. Everyone has that power to move the average one way or the other, move the culture one way or the other. And so standing in that power means sitting up and like, and doing that and learning that and exercising that as a muscle um, and seeing what happens when you do that and being able to, to do that, not just when you are the CEO or not just when you're the founder or not just when you're at the top of the VC house, but being able to do it in the little. So by the time you come to the big, it's part and parcel of the way that you are and the way that you operate. Um, and the way that you do business. And so for me, that's what standing in my power is. And it's experiments, it's a series of experiments, you know, as we will have in my bio, there's a lot of things that I do. There's a lot of boards that I sit on. There's a lot of rooms that I'm in. And for me, all of it is about standing my power and saying, okay, cool, they've let me in. What am I gonna say now that I'm in? What is what is the change that can be affect? What's the norm that I can do? And sometimes just by being present in the room, that's enough. <laughs> sometimes just turning up and, you know, being that youngest blackest femaleist, you know, is, is still a thing. And other times it is like, no, I'm, we shouldn't do that. Or no, this should be the consideration. Or actually here's something I've seen elsewhere. And I think this is something that would help and apply in this situation. And I think it's so important for folks to be able to do that, but to recognize that power isn't just in titles and power isn't just in um, what we might consider as kind of traditional power structures, but everyone has a power that they can stand in. Absolutely. In terms of talking just a little bit about that, just slightly off topic, but I, I've heard you say before that you're an introvert, and which I find hard to believe is is the first thing I want to say. <laughs> but I've to, I've talked to other CEOs, especially one this week actually, who's brilliant, and he said the same thing that he he's practiced at being an extrovert. He knows what his role is as a CEO. It's the front person, it's the storyteller. But in terms of being in a leadership position when you are naturally introverted, I'm wondering if you have ever, because you have so many other, like you said, titles and you do so many different things, have you ever suffered from imposter syndrome? And if you have, how did you talk yourself out of it? Imposter syndrome is often, and it's mostly about the environment you're in rather than you as the person. And I think I don't know that I'd always draw the line between being an introvert and, and having imposter syndrome. I think for me, introversion is just, it's, it's quite, I'm out and about a lot and it's quite draining to be out and about a lot and having to talk to people and do all of that, especially when I really just want to stay at home. I mean, now I can say it, I don't know, I mean, we can't laugh about any part of the pandemic, but I have a word for the year every year. My word for the year in 2020 was JOMO, the joy of missing out. So I wanted mm. to be at home more. Mm. And then lockdown happened and it was like, this is great for me, but I didn't really hope for the whole world to be with me um and you know that my goal in life is to be a hermit I really do just want to do enough so I can stay at home and not have to leave and no one can say that I owe them anything by then you know and I have to get out the house I so I, I love that like, like this is my space whether I'd connect that with me feeling like I'm not supposed to be in particular places or I'm about to be found out in particular places I think my thing is always I'm invited most of the places I'm in I'm invited to be in them Right. So even this podcast, right, Danielle, we know each other and I wasn't going to say no, you know, not, not in that way, you could have done. But, but mostly <laughs> yeah. I wasn't because it's you, yeah. but mostly it's like, you've asked me to be here. And so actually the pressure is off. It's not that like I've pushed myself in and I'm an imposter trying to break into the bank. Mm. It's that, no, you asked me into the bank and I'm here. And if I say something nonsensical, if I make a mistake, if I am rubbish as a podcast host, I feel like it's not really solely only on me to be found out it's like no who asked for me to be here mm. and then it's are you the imposter because you invited in an impostor, you know and so yeah. I think for me normally that's how I end up 
looking and approaching most things is I'm fortunate enough and privileged enough to be invited to be in these spaces. And so I'm going to turn up and I'm going to bring the value I know I can bring and the things I know I am, and I'm not going to pretend to be anybody else. I'm just going to be myself. And then that reduces anything or any, any reaction from my environment that might think I'm an imposter where I'm like, well, if you don't want to listen to me, that's okay. But you asked me to be here. So this feels like a you problem rather than a me problem. And that is genuinely how I take it. And, and with the, all the things I do, I also don't have the time to force myself into spaces that I shouldn't be in. Mm. And so I think for me, that's, that's how it has ended up being that it's not something I have. I think the other, you know, like I said, kind of thing that I have in my back pocket is, yeah, like I passed those exams when I was little. And so there's a confidence that I have then been building on since that point when I got those first set of results back. That means that I, there are things I know I know. Mm. Right? There are things I don't know. And I don't, I don't pretend to know, but there are a lot of things I don't know. In fact, I'll say it again, and I say it in the book quite a lot. There are a lot of things I don't know. There are a lot of things I do know. A lot of things I have experienced, a lot of things I have seen, a lot of things I have read, a lot of things I have learned, a lot of things I have developed, a lot of things I have done. And I stand on those and I don't stand on anything that isn't in that list. And that for me, and I know I'm privileged in being able to do that, but that for me has been my, if we want to call it combating imposter syndrome, or that for me has been my insurance or my hedge against imposter syndrome is that it's, it's not that, you know, I'm on my course and I shouldn't be here. It's like, well, no, I didn't, I didn't choose myself to be on that course at Oxford. I didn't run the interview process I didn't I didn't so I, I can't possibly be an imposter here because they chose me to be here I didn't choose myself to be here and if I don't know anything it's like well maybe you should have run a better <laughs> recruitment process it's on, you. <laughs> it's on you you've wasted your space you should have given it to someone else and I think that's always been my thing is I didn't ask to be I mean of course I applied but I didn't give myself I didn't give myself the job you gave me the job based on what you heard this is really, do you know, this is a fantastic framing. And the only reason I put this question is in because literally on Monday, I interviewed a very accomplished CEO and he's talked on other podcasts about having this kind of imposter syndrome where he felt extremely lucky to be where he was at. And he's got, you know, so much proven success. He has no reason to feel like that, mm-hmm. but it's just something he's always felt. And that's why I wanted to ask you. So I'm gr- so grateful that you've shown another framing for it because I think lots of people will be listening and will learn from that. I've never heard someone say it in the way that you have. So thank you for that. A few more questions. This is one that actually is a bit more personal for you in the sense that I know that as a CEO, that you're at the forefront, you're on the stage, you're the person that everyone looks to, whether it's looking for answers, looking for clues about how the business is going or or what's next in the company, but also you set the culture. There's just so much on you. Mm. And I wanted to ask you, because you are, in my eyes, so good at everything you touch, like everything you do, <laughs> you seem to win the award for. In your eyes, Danielle, there you well, go, there you, there you go again. Well, I would like to say that the podcast, the books, I mean, because there's more than one book and all the stuff that you do, you're so accomplished. So I wanted to ask you, has there ever been a particularly tough time through work that you've had to get through and and how did you get through it yeah there's tough times all the time show me a ceo show me someone that's on a roller coaster i mean yeah i'm not i mean this is why i say like in your eyes um you know they then this is the imposter syndrome thing right that, that's a you thing daniel that you think i ne- never make any mistakes like i like i'm constantly making mistakes all the time i mean this is a pre-recorded podcast daniel knows i've pre-recorded certain answers and it's just second nature daniel i just go back and i start the sentence again so i'm constantly making mistakes as a ceo yeah like every season 
every quarter. I'm always looking, I'm actually looking for the challenge. It's like, okay, what's the big one we're going to deal with this three months? Like, what is the challenge we're going to set ourselves where we're like, we're going to sort out that internally people don't seem to know who's doing what, or we're going to sort out internally four day work week. Like how are we going to work out the mechanics of four day work week? Or how are we going to work out the mechanics of trying to do something across the country in a new way and build regional things when there's a lockdown? How are we going to work out the mechanics of young people really not wanting to do virtual stuff as much because they go to school but companies really wanting to do virtual because none of them have gone back to the office and we're in the chasm how are we going to sort out the fact that non-binary as a concept is something that young people and the, and the new generation are more au fait with and the organizations that i talk to when i say non-binary are always either in shock or there's always one person that comes up and says thank you very much for just saying those words on stage in front of everybody and so there's always there's always challenges there's always things it's I think it's part of the job of CEO is that, yeah, you're like chief problem solver across your organization. And if you're problem, if you're solving problems that A, there was a problem in the first place to be solved, which means that there was a failing somewhere. And then part B is as you're solving problems, you are trying, you are experimenting and experiment means you don't know if it's going to go right or wrong. And so sometimes it will go wrong. Like it will go wrong. And then you work again and you try again and you learn, you build, you measure, you learn, you're iterative, lean startup, right? Eric Reese, mm. you follow in on that and you go again, but constantly i'm always making mistakes always making mistakes always having things that go wrong always in a season and i try not to be constantly in the storm but i think it is definitely sometimes i'm just like i've just got a knuckle down like these are two months to go our bullet journal our gratitude journal i'll lay it out i'll talk to mentors i'll talk to our trustees i'll talk to board i'll talk to the young people we are the youth board i talk to the team i talk to my peers i talk to everybody right i talk to my partner i talk to my friends I, I, I talk to my parents i talk to the people on the bus like i'm like okay let's talk it out like what do you think what do you say i read you know and sometimes you just have to be like look this is the thing this month i need to get my head down and we need to figure this out pronto like what is the workflow gonna be the team has grown we were seven ish people before lockdown so when boris was like everybody stay home we were seven in the team we're now 21 22 like that in itself like growth growing pains is what we've like now i feel like i say growing pains at least 10 times a week <laughs> like and it's like it, so there's problems constantly appearing and rearing their heads and there's seasons and you have to prioritize choose your favorite problem choose the one that you need to solve now choose the one that's gonna ensure that things don't fall over and you get on and you work with it whilst you're also evolving while you're also preempting problems so to me it's the work the work is there are seasons you're going through you pick which season you're on you put your head down. I mean, I've had it, what are we now, we're now November. In the last six months, I've definitely had that where it's like, okay, someone's gone on mat leave for the first time ever. Like, what does they even look like? How do we recruit? What do we recruit for? How does the rest of the team look like? Mm. Who's going to do her things while she's not here because she's fairly senior? Like, what What are we, what is the first time we've ever had that at this level? And so that's been it. Is, and it's like three months to put your head down. I'm not leaving the country because I'm going to sit down, make sure everything's set up. And then I'm going to have to leave the country in the second half of those six months. And so while I'm away, what are the structures we put in place? What are we testing? What are we stress testing? And then we come back and we reconvene and we say, okay, cool, here's, here's what we've learned. Here's what happens for next time. The work is that there's always gonna to be tough times. There's always gonna be challenges. There's always gonna be things that you're working through. And, and that is just what you sign up for really, I think. But don't you think it's one of those things, that work element, the side part of being a CEO? Because obviously, like we said, it's about being at the forefront and you know, people see you as the leader, but they don't see, I'm talking about public, you know society as a whole we, we see ceos but we don't see 
the hard times like people will be very quick to announce when something's going well but it's mm -hmm. not like they're on twitter or wherever every day talking about the ins and outs of it so it's interesting to hear that it obviously is a constantly evolving thing and as a ceo as a leader you were invited yet again to something and this was the trialing of a kind of future of work type situation and i know that you've been doing the four-day week how have you found the experiment and do you think you'll continue with it so I think we will. It's been interesting. We've wanted to do this for age before we knew that there was a pilot and the rest of it. And so the pilot just came at the right time, landed in the right place. And we're like, brilliant. <laughs> we're not going to do this on our own. We're going to do it with others. Mm. It hasn't been as hard as I'd have thought it was going to be. I'll be honest. I think we already have this thing of Fridays. I mean, if you look back at it far enough, there was a time when it was a seven day week, right? And then there was a time when it was a six day week. Then we got to five day week. We've been stuck here for a while. And then so four days, like <laughs> continuing the trend, maybe. Yeah. I think it's been nice for us because we've had to rethink work and, re and think about outcomes rather than outputs. And that's been easier for some people to do than others, but that has been the task that has been the work that's been what we had to think about like okay should does that meeting need to be a meeting can we do that async should there be an automation that we should just be using so that someone's not sat there doing that should we have an admin that works on that and does those in and batches those rather than us having to do that as a core member of the team like is there a, a drop in service for our partners is there a drop in service for our beneficiaries like if you're a contractor and you're part-time, do will you work that, you know, should it be a Friday? Should it be a Monday? Should it be a shorter day? Should will it be longer? And and all of that, we've kind of we've just worked our way through the series of, I guess if you want challenges and problems that come with trying to do something that's slightly different from the norm. And it's been really nice to get to know the team in a slightly different way, to get to give people time back, to get to value them in a particular way, and to get to see that it is possible. It has been fine. It's not been without its challenges, but it's been fine and we we will you know continue the pilot will everyone will need to re-opt in again in january when we when we return back from our christmas break who wants to be in it and it's going to be interesting to see if anyone chooses not mm. to have the four-day work week and to go back to five days but for for the team on the whole it's been great to be able to do that to baseline and see that yeah we've been able to maintain it we've been able to you know keep our outcomes and we're doing 80% time for 100% of the outcomes. And so that has meant that, yeah, it's like, can you do 80% of the work? And that's been really nice for folks to be like, yeah, actually it's 80, 20. I'm gonna graveyard that because I just don't need to do that. And I also don't need to be here an extra day doing that because we still get what the results are. We're still able to provide it. The kids are still enjoying it. They're still turning up. We're still doing four days of half term, you know, all of that. So it's just been, it's been really nice to be able to do. I'm really proud of the team for, making it happen. I mean, there was obviously the incentive there for all of them, you know, full pay <laughs> at 80% of the time, like, why wouldn't you want to try and make that work? But they have, and it's not been wool over the eyes. Like we, we, we've, you know, ask our partners, like there's not been a big, oh, you know, everything is so much slower now. It's been, mm. okay, cool. All right. We get it. We get it when we need to get it. We have it. We have it in the time we need to have it. Everyone's at the event that needs to be at the event. And, you know, it's all good. It's fantastic. I hope we, the whole country adopts it because I think the pandemic taught us that actually there is a place for us to be with our families and a time that we can make for work as opposed to the other way around. And I think that allowing more women to, because I think that was the thing about the pandemic. Well, I felt it as a mother that it really kind of negatively impacted women more in many ways because they were having to do all the roles plus be mm -hmm. a teacher. And that was hard. And I think 
the flexibility will allow for more women, especially people returning after having children. Mm. Two more questions. So obviously, I know that you're on Countdown, which is one of the <laughs> best shows that we have. Um, I wanted to ask, because I mean, we've talked about visibility and being a role model and representation. To have you on Countdown was brilliant. I wanted to know how you found it. And also, can you tell me like what you're most proud of in your career? Because something like Countdown is obviously such a wonderful experience. I'm just curious out of all the things that you've done, like what you're most proud of. So I'm most proud of there's, so there's a, and you can't, you know, you shouldn't have a favorite child and stuff. Mm-hmm. At Stemets, my favorite, one of my favorite things that I have a couple of favorites, but my main thing that I'm most proud of is those certification academies that we do like every half term without fail someone is gaining some certification in that cohort and even now it's more than half more frequently than half terms actually we've got a couple coming up over christmas and stuff but for me that's the most that's the thing that i'm most proud of is those young people are going out and they're gaining certifications as young women in a world that still is not quite sure that that's something they can do and they're doing it without much fanfare they're doing it regularly they're just getting on with it they have it they sign up for it there's no pre-selection they have free food while they're doing it like it's a fully stomach experience and they're having that and for me i'm so proud of that because it's it, i can point to many folks who if let's say i'd have got to them at 10 they also would have had their gcses at that point like mm. it, like it's for me that's it that's the full circle thing that i'm it's one of the things is it's probably the thing i'm the most proud of of all that we do is setting that up and allowing them to work with the universities or work with the Python Institute or whoever it might be that's awarding or QA, I should give them a name check as well. Like whoever it is that's providing those qualifications, like it's it's one of the things that I'm the most, I'm so proud of it. Cause I remember as a grad, you know, sitting on these courses and it's like, these are teenage girls doing it as if it's the most normal thing because for them it is the most normal thing. So that I'm super, super proud of. Um, Countdown was so interesting. Like, of course it's an institution. Like it was, a, it was an incredible thing to be asked to do. It was honored to be there and be a part of it. It was work. It was five episodes a day, three days on the trot, which meant that I'd finished recording all of them before the first one was broadcast, which was really, really funny to sit back and actually watch it back. Cause you also, you do like a flush, right? Like you don't, like I I didn't remember, I don't, so me watching it back, it was like I was watching it the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You're in the studio and it's just, it's a whole nother experience completely. I mean, it's also one of those ones where, again, I'm the kind of person when I'm in something, I'm not necessarily reflecting on it. So the same way as, you know, I said at the top, you know, you walk past the meeting room and I'm the odd one out. And I I didn't know I was the odd one out. I think in Countdown, it's the same thing where it was only, so we started off recording Christmas episodes. And so there were baubles on the numbers and the letters block. and, And I caught my, I caught a glimpse of my reflection in the bauble. And then I was like, oh my goodness, Amory, that's your countdown. Because <laughs> before that, like being in the studio, you, it's not, you can't see yourself in the no, studio. So it wasn't, you know? And so it's still surreal to think that that's a thing. And it's so sweet bumping into people who are like, oh, I used to watch my granddad or my mum loves it. Or, you know, I was at dinner yesterday and, and I was like trying to leave the dinner early because it was overrunning. And someone's like, can I just take a photo real quick? Send to my family wow. and family WhatsApp group. And it's so cute because again, it all went out, most of it went out during lockdown. And so I've not been in the street and seen people as much as I maybe would have. Mm. And so it's almost been like a delayed response. Um, but you know, it was, it's a really hard job. Like shout out to Rachel. It's Rachel's job. I'm not coming for it anytime soon. <laughs> I've recorded a couple of more episodes that will be out in 2023 of eight out of 10 cats does countdown. Oh, brilliant. Which is, in, essentially, which is entirely another show. Yeah. 
as in like nothing comment. I think I, I wanted a straw at some point when we were recording and they had to go and ask the countdown team, even though, you know, like you'd think that it's all united and it's really not. So that was a really interesting thing. And it'll be interesting. It'll be fun to see what happens next and what I do next. I mean, TV is one of the things it's not my main thing. And that's been mm -hmm. a fun discussion to have with TV people, my TV agent and everyone else. But I think it, you know, the idea that there was such a backlash for because folks had never seen a black woman do maths before. Mm means that it's still a place that I need to go into. And, like, and it's one of those ones where it's like, yeah, just by turning up, like that was enough of the change and the challenge mm. <laughs> for some people. Um, and so it's like, yeah, maybe there's more places that I need to turn up on and I need to be just so that they can be like, let's let's help you with your allergy uh, to <laughs> black women doing maths because we should sort that out. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, that's that's my my summation of the calendar thing. In, and it's celebrated 40 years, actually. So, mm. you know, really big thing to be involved with and really, really honored to be a part of it. You honestly have such a positive outlook on life. That's the one thing, having done all my research, but also like knowing of you and having met you, you, you have such an amazingly positive outlook on everything and you reframe things in such wonderful ways that I think it must be like one of the key traits that you have in order to succeed because you just definitely have that certain aspect of you. You, you seem to draw people in, which is something that I've been actually meaning to tell you for a long time, that <laughs> it's a very welcome attribute to see somebody who's out there saying, these are the issues we've got. This is how we're going to challenge them. This is what we're going to do about them. And you're at the forefront challenging that, like you just said about the representation on TV. I think it's a wonderful quality. Anyway, last question, which I ask absolutely everyone is, we start at the beginning and we're going to end there. If you could go back in time to a younger Anne-Marie, what's one piece of advice you'd offer her? So it's funny, people ask me this question. And I'm always like, younger Anne-Marie? <laughs> I was younger Anne-Marie. I've not met anybody <laughs> like myself. So the advice I give myself is not even the advice I'd even say for others, because it's it's not the advice to younger. My real advice to younger Marie. I'll give the real one. I'll give the fake one. That's mm. like the one for. And we'll choose which one we put in. <laughs> oh, oh gosh. So no. Well, the real <laughs> one is. I, I so I still don't take myself very seriously, and it, and it's something that's still now. Like I bumped into someone. I was in Malaysia recently, and I met someone for the first time, and they ended up becoming a mentor. And it's really funny because it was like, do you know that like there's so much you could be doing? I'm like, yeah, but what? And people look at me and they're like, you know, I get this now. At least once a month, someone an earnest who I've never met I, and it's always a different person is like yeah like they're doing like I don't know if you could like dream fantasy whatever it's like who would run the country and they say I'm Marie and I'm always like ha <laughs> me running the country ha and everyone's like no 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 so not just younger Amory, but like Amory now mm. <laughs> it's always been take yourself more seriously man like mm. <laughs> there's so much more you could do if you were just like I'm going to be serious but you know I struggle to be serious my fake advice for folks though for younger Amory would be find your tribe and I say this to, I said this to the school I was just at this morning, like, don't do things on your own. And, and it's not wait until you found your tribe before you do anything, but it's just always be looking out for people that you can be connected to groups that you can be a part of organizations that you can tap into, because that makes everything so much easier. Like any of those challenges that you're, that we talked about earlier, you know, you sit and you're like, oh my goodness, this is like awful. Like this thing in particular has been such a problem and you talk to five other people and you realize it's just a problem in general it's not your problem it's a problem mm. and like that having that for almost everything means that you have perspective that allows you to rise above right and get things done and maybe that's part of my framing of the positive framing I have where it's like I, I can't take these things personally because I know it's not just me um and so I think that's really a really powerful thing to be able to do 
as early as is possible to say, hey, like I was a child prodigy, I wasn't the only child prodigy. So like, what was I able to do or how was I able to tap into other folks and compare notes so that then now as adults, that's something we could be, maybe we can all be taking ourselves seriously together and running the country, you know, like all of those kinds of things. So I think that's my fake young Amri advice is to find your tribe. But the real one is Amri, just take it, take yourself seriously. I don't take myself very seriously. And, and it's a question people always, you know, the pressure of being role model. And it's like, yeah, well, I am one, I get it, but like, you know, I take it as seriously as I can do, but it's not like every morning I must wake up with the, and put on the helmet of role model them and take that very serious. You know, it's like, no, 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 I take it seriously, but you know, got to enjoy ourselves as we go, right? Life's for the living, so, you know. But this is why you are, you know, when I said earlier about being positive or whatever, <laughs> you're, it, this is you, right? <laughs> this is part of your charm. It's like your yeah, authentic like, Relax, self. man, yeah. relax, guys. But maybe that's allowed you to achieve as much as you have, because if you took it seriously, if you felt the full weight of what you do, and we, you know, I'm going to put it in at the top of the podcast, what you do, <laughs> you know, it probably take me an hour. But the point is that you've just got so many different hats and and I think that is how you've got where you have because you, it's possible. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah. So I'd yeah, say yeah. don't don't take yourself seriously. Well, there you go. But, <laughs> but what more could I? Who knows? Yeah, There's, it's a fine balance, isn't it? But yeah. yeah, I think you've got it <laughs> sorted. But anyway, thank you so much for your time today, Amory. Thanks, Danielle. Thanks, Amory. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Doctor Anne Marie in Maffedon. And thank you to Anne-Marie for graciously giving me her time and for sharing her story with us. Finally, as always, I like to end with a quote. And today's quote comes from the Hidden Figures book by Margot Lee Shetterly. The book is Hidden Figures, the American Dream and the Untold Story of the Black Women Mathematicians Who Helped Win the Space Race. There's also a film called Hidden Figures, which I highly recommend. And the quote is this. Before a computer became an inanimate object... And before Mission Control landed in Houston, before Sputnik changed the course of history, and before the NACA became NASA, before the Supreme Court case Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka established that separate was in fact not equal, and before the poetry of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech rang out over the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, Langley's West computers were helping America dominate aeronautics space research and computer technology, carving out a place for themselves as female mathematicians who were also black. Black mathematicians who were also female.